Um, chapter 20 comes to a close today. Several weeks ago, we saw in this journey, as we have been watching since the birth of Jesus, three years, or 30 years, almost 33 years, has now come to pass. Several chapters ago, Jesus told us as he was heading from Pan, if you remember that sermon, some of it's forever embedded in some of your minds, um, but from chapter 16 of Matthew, from then on, Jesus says he's going to head downward, he's going to head toward uh, the city of Jerusalem. And this is where Jesus is at this moment. He is in the outskirts, he's in Jericho, he's in a suburb of Jerusalem, and he is, he is heading there to that place. The king is going to unleash his kingdom, the, the build-up, the climax, as a person who loves cinema and, and good movies, um, as uh, the, the climax is, is heading in that direction. The moment that we have been waiting for, again, these people who are reading this and have experienced this don't know what we know, even though they've been told multiple times. And Jesus is, is heading. This is the, the week. It's leading into the weekend um, of the last week of Jesus' earthly life before his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. In the city of Jerusalem, it's, it's Passover season. This is the, the most holiest of all of the festivals. If you're a Jew, this is, this is the Christmas. This is this is our Easter, this is the, the, the crescendo, this is the, something that you look forward to as a family is, is coming up. And so thousands of people are on these roads that are leading towards Jerusalem and Jesus and his disciples are counted amongst the number. They're there to celebrate the passing over of the wrath of God on their lives that has been a part of their history since the Exodus story and as in the midst of all of these crowds that are heading in this direction, Jesus pulls his ragamuffin group, his, his gang of, of young men to the side. And for the, at least the third time that we have recorded in Scripture, which probably means he did it over and over and over again, but the third time that we have recorded in Scripture, uh, Jesus pulls them to the side and, and kind of like we do as, as parents, we try to you know, let our kids know what, as best we can about what is about to happen. So Jesus does not uh, leave this to mystery, but Jesus pulls them to the side and begins to explain to them his agenda. We see this in the passage, don't we? In verse 17, Jesus tells them, hey, hey guys, b before we get there, just so you know what's about to happen once we get there, all right? Jesus is not sneaky. Jesus is truthful. He wants them to know again. And he says, hey, once we get to Jerusalem, it's not going to be the way that you think it's going to be. What's about to happen is, is going to be very different than you think what you think is about to happen. I'm going to be killed here. I'm going to be murdered. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be buried into a borrowed tomb. But on the third day, I do want you to know, after all the mockery out of all of the, the death that is coming to me, on the third day, I'm going to be resurrected. This is going to happen. And yet, what do we see happens? What do we see happen? After the third time that Jesus has been telling these men that have been walking with him, they have left everything, their family, their riches, their jobs, all these things have been following Jesus for all of this, these last three years. And Jesus tells them this once again. And yet, what do we see take place inside of the scriptures? They're still blind. His closest of friends, his brothers, his band of brothers still are blind to this reality. Now, we see here in verse uh, 20 um, that then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him asked him for something. So Jesus shares this impending doom yet hopeful statement to his closest of friends. They're blind, but immediately what happens? The sons of Zebedee, 
who are, the Zebedee is their, probably their dad. These are their son. This is James and this is John. And the, also are known as the Sons of Thunder, right? Which sounds more like a WWE wrestling tag team than it does anything else. But where do they get this idea of being called the Sons of Thunder? See, we have this, this picture of Peter being the only boisterous one. But that is not true. James and John were also extremely boisterous. You remember that time that they go into a, a town and the people reject them? And what do James and John do? Hey, Jesus, you want us to call down the, just fire from heaven and burn up all these people? And that's where they get the nickname, Sons of Thunder. When Jesus nicknames you, it is a nickname forever. Like, it's the perfect nickname. You ever try to find somebody to give themselves their own nickname? How ridiculous. You've got to be given a nickname. Because if, like, if I get a nickname, it's like beef salad or something. I call me, you know, taser face or something. I mean, something just scary, right? But a nickname has to be given to you. And Jesus, the Son of God, has just named you. And it's got the bushwhackers, the Legion of doom, sons of thunder. I mean, and, and these guys are calling down, wanting. And yet we get in our minds that it is only Peter who gets himself in trouble. And yet, who are in the inner circle of Jesus? Peter, James, and John. The big three here. Now, it's probably because they're the most ADD, shouldn't have sugar, can't keep their mouth shut kid that you want to keep close to you, right? You got to keep an eye on these three. But they came to believe that, man, they were really something. Remember, these guys are always listed with Peter, typically always listed with, with Peter. They got to see the transfiguration, they got to see Jesus kind of turn into his divine self and see Elijah and Moses stand upon a hillside next to him. The rest of the, 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 rest of the disciples weren't able to see this. What's also an interesting fact about James and John that a lot of people overlook it, it, is that most of the evidence is there is that James and John are Jesus' cousin. So right now some of you are like, what? I only thought John the Baptist was his cousin. Scripture kind of points out that, that at um, the, the, the feet of the cross, that there are several ladies there. One of the Gospels says it's like Mary's sister, okay? One of them, it names it, the lady, and then another one says that it is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So Jesus is saying, man, I'm about to die, I'm about to be buried. I'm about to be mocked. I'm about to be resurrected. But before we get to the city, James and his mama, potentially, and I would believe to be uh, Jesus' aunt, are standing there pleading with Jesus for him to do something. He, she says to him, Say to these two sons of mine um, that they are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your kingdom. I'm about to die, about to be buried, about to be resurrected, mocked, all these sorts of things. Yet, what is in the minds of his closest followers? An earthly kingdom. They're still focusing on this. If you skipped over to the, the, the Gospel of Mark and you were to read this story in chapter 10, it says the guys, the boys, are the ones that are initially asking this question. And they come up to Jesus and they ask Jesus, they're like, hey, hey, Jesus, will you do, we want you, and this is what it says, it says, will you do what we want or what we ask you to do? Don't you hate it when people do that? Hey, will you do something for me? I need you to promise. What's my first reaction is always, what do you want me to do, right? I'm not going to agree to this until I know the fullest extent of what it is that you are going to ask me to do. And so this mama with her boys, they're asking Jesus, teacher, we want you to do whatever it is that we ask. Could you imagine looking in the face of God, asking that question? We want you to commit before you know. We, we want you to be controlled by us. That our actions, thoughts, 
prayers even in some way can control the sovereignty of God and his, his plan and what he has for his people. But once again, what do we learn? That the disciples, they were blind. They're still blind. Now, they're not blind in all things, but they're still blind in some things. It's a process. They're still blind to the purpose of Jesus and his mission. After three years of following him, they believe that he is heading to Jerusalem to set up an earthly kingdom. He's going to overthrow those crooked Jews and those dirty Romans, and he's going to set up. They're going to establish the new temple. He's going to sit on a throne. And in all good kingdoms, your closest allies, those whom you can trust, what do you do? You empower them to help you govern. And so they're looking at this from a very earthly, earthly perspective. We need to get this settled before all the fanfare starts. Hey, Jesus, just go ahead and let us know who's VP, right? Who's in your cabinet? That's always the big question for us as presidential uh, elections roll around, right? It's not only who's going to be the president, but man, who's he, who's he going to get in his cabinet? Who is going to be the supporting roles? Because those people have very specific and very important roles. Think about Joseph in the Old Testament, right? There can be blessing from this. Jesus isn't saying that this is necessarily wrong with earthly kingdoms. Joseph gets in good with the Egyptian king, right? This is good, this is awesome. It saves his family. It saves m probably millions of people from dying of famine. But he got that position not because he was Egyptian, but he was in favor with God. That means he had grace with God and God working in his life. He became friends with the Egyptian Pharaoh because he worked hard, served hard, loved the Lord faithfully, and God richly blessed and used him. But Jesus' kingdom is not an earthly one at this stage. Jesus and the inauguration of Jesus' kingdom is, is, is not like a president, is not like an earthly king, it is not like an earthly government. How does Jesus respond? Verse 22. Look at what he says. You do not know what you are even asking. Are you able to drink this cup that I'm about to drink? Now in a few weeks I'm going to dive into what this whole cup picture is. But to kind of give you a preview of what that is, with throughout the Old Testament, in several different places, um, the cup is a reference to the divine wrath of God. They're thinking it's earthly wine. They're thinking it's a celebration. They're thinking, man, all of this is about to change. Our lives are about to change. We're about to get a new robe and new names. And, and you know, all this stuff is about to happen to us as we become the, the governors of Jesus' kingdom. Our slavery is over, praise the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's take up an offer and call it a day. Right? This is the, the mentality of the disciples. And yet, yet Jesus is saying the cup that he is going to drink in about a week is this image of great suffering. It is, it is saying that, man, I'm going to drink the cup of divine wrath that God is sovereignly pouring out on a deserving humanity. And Jesus says, can you drink this cup? And what is crazy is their response we're able. Yep. We can do that. Of course we can. We are completely able to do this. Despite all of the teaching, they did not realize that the kingdom meant that Jesus was speaking to enter into that kingdom, to be a citizen in that kingdom, was by the pathway of lowliness. It was through sacrifice. It was through humility. It was through rejection in this world. How did the other disciples respond? Much like children, right, who run up and ask you as a parent, can I do this? And you notice them. You can see kids running. They want to outrun the other kid to ask you first, right? Because if I ask first, I get it, right? So the other disciples are there, and they're hearing this dialogue between Jesus' aunt and his cousins, right? Maybe she's using the family card. She's like, hey, you know, they're your blood. 
And they're hearing this, and what does the Bible tell us? They, they become indignant. They become angry. They're annoyed. They're like, oh, why didn't I ask that first? Because remember, Jesus has told them earlier in chapter 19 that what will they receive? He tells them, in heaven, you are going to be sitting next to me on, on thrones governing because of your great sacrifice. But one or a day or so later, they're already arguing and jockeying for position on who gets to sit closer to Jesus on those thrones. This is the second time that we've had this kind of battle and immaturity taking place inside of these men. Notice again in verses 25 through 26, Jesus says that, man, this is the, the way that the Gentiles do it. These are the way that pagan rulers sought power and control over others is, is to be over them and then to empower others. And again, Jesus isn't saying that that's necessarily bad. But Jesus and his people do not gain power in the same way that the world does. Jesus concludes in verse 27, and whoever would be the first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus gives this idea of a servant. He uses that term. What is a servant during this time? This is a, like an employee. All right? This is a, a servant is a paid hand. You do a work, you get a wage. But a slave receives no payment. They give, but they do not receive. Jesus reminds them, imagine looking at a group of people and their entire history is that of servant and slavery and telling them, you still will work for a master and you will still be owned. Jesus looks at them and says this, He concludes in these passages that after kind of saying this just crazy statement that he continues on this trip. And he comes across what? He comes across some men. And, and, and they're blind. And this great crowd is following Jesus. And they, they, they come to two men. And these, these men are physically blind. Disciples, spiritually blind. And, and these men are physically blind. But you could also say that they are probably spiritually blind as well. But God has graced them in this moment as they know that Jesus is passing by. How do two blind men know that Jesus is coming? <laughs> Jesus is coming. Oh! Or maybe they hear the rumbles in the crowd. Jesus is coming. The, the gossiping is, as, as the potential, the earthly king is coming. His name is Jesus. He's in all this thing, but it's the Passover. He's going to ride into town. He's going to take over. And these two blind men, listen to what they say. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Notice what the crowd does. Look in your Bibles. What does the crowd do when this, these, these two blind men, they're crying out, Lord Jesus, have mercy. And there's this haunting passage there where the crowd begins to rebuke them. Don't ask him for that. They keep telling the blind guys that, that, that are becoming obnoxious, you know, standing on the corner, holding up the signs, and, and they're telling them, they're, they're tired of hearing, they're begging, they're tired. And in this haunting passage, he, he said, they, the crowd begins to rebuke them, telling them to be quiet but the bible tells us what did these two blind men do they cry out even more lord have mercy on us son of david and man i missed this all week until like thursday and then it was like oh in my, my dining room table notice what happens here verse 32 jesus asked the two men who are begging him lord have mercy on me he asked them what would you have me do? Go back up a few verses. In the conversation that Jesus is having with James, John, and their mama, Jesus asked them the same question. What would you have me to do for you? See, one came looking at Jesus, very demanding. Hey, Jesus, we want you to do what, what we're going to ask you. So can you agree to that before we tell you what that is? 
The two physically blind men, what are they saying? Lord Jesus, have, have mercy. They're coming to Jesus, dependent upon Jesus. He is their only hope of being rescued from not only spiritual, um, the spiritual wrath that is to come to them, but also in their physical. Imagine culturally what it would have been like for these men to have grown up and to have been blind. Yet they're completely dependent upon Jesus. And, and yet Jesus doesn't do what the disciples want him to do, them to do, but Jesus has pity, he has compassion, he touches their eyes, and it recovered their sight. And, and here is, is what, what I saw, is that, that difference between what the disciples are asking. Jesus asked both groups the same question, yet he does the will, submit, he, he shows compassion, he shows pity toward one, and he reveals the arrogance of the other. These two blind men who now see, what do they do? They get up and they follow Jesus. They're now followers of Jesus. What is the difference? What do you want me to do for you? And yet the response is the motivation behind these two groups of people's hearts. The disciples, again, spiritually blind in this, their, their motivation was just the seeking of rewards. And yet... These men were crying out independence, mercy. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David. They understood the messianic principle that, that the Messiah who was to come would be from the son, the lineage of David. Man, what a, what a realization. What is Jesus digging at here? What is, what is he telling us in this story? As we have been saying, I think every week over the last several weeks, and just wrestling through this, do we demand things of God? Or are we dependent on God? So, it begs us to ask this question. What does this reveal about the disciples' character? And also, what does it reveal about our character. And have you ever noticed or wondered um, why things in our lives um, aren't really going the way that we want them to go? They're not really going the way that we desire them to go. College students, I, I will miss you um, as we do every summer in when, when you leave us, and what's always interesting about when I, I teach at Western and, and t talking to my college students and trying to get them to understand, and, but I think if you guys would to, to ask the question of many of the people in here who have been even faithfully following Jesus for years, if you were to ask them the very question, has your life turned out the way that you expected to, it to when you were sitting in those classes? We're going to get charismatic in here. Nod your head. Either way, everyone. Did your life go the way that you thought it would? We got almost an amen. Did y'all hear that? The frozen chosen almost woke up. All right? No. We heard a no. We can't get a yes, pastor, but we can get a no, pastor. Right? Your life... You had these big plans. I'm going to make this money. I'm going to have 2.5 kids by this age. We're going to live in this house in this city. This is going to be our lives, our jobs, all, all these sorts of things. I'm, I'm not going to have much struggle. My, my, my husband will be, uh, you know, this knight, and she will always be beautiful and never get a wrinkle, ever, right? I mean, it, it doesn't happen. See, we are like these disciples, Though, because we think the, the more faithful that we are, we should be what? We should be blessed by that. We should receive rewards for our service. And instead of falling deeper in love with the Creator, as the history of humanity goes, we are more enamored with God's creation than we am, than we are Him. What does this reveal about us? Our arrogance. And is, am I the only one? Probably. So that was revealed last week. 
Am I the only one who is wanting to shake my fist at God? Asking, I cannot believe that this is happening. Again, really God? Haven't we been given enough as a family? Haven't I been given enough in my life? Isn't there enough pain? And I'm not talking about the pain caused by my own doing. I'm, caused, I'm talking about the type of pain that has been brought to my life that I didn't have anything to do with. That it just has seemed to have happened. And, and you begin that comparison trap. And you're looking at this family over here. And man, it's like they ever have suffering. They don't ever have pain just come their way. I mean, if a tornado comes to Alvaton, it's going to hit my house. Right? It could skip everyone else's. But that's the tendency that, that me and, and I'll say my wife, so I'm not alone, can often have. I mean, think about it. We, we kind of live and have created a culture that is completely built around incentives. You don't do anything anymore just because it's the right thing to do. All right? It, everything is, is centered ar around incentives. If you want to buy this, by purchasing this, you will also get this. You can, you can have this, we, we, if we do this, it drives, even if it's good moral stuff, even if it's, if, if it's quote unquote, a blessing to others. It's like, man, it, you cannot go, to, I'm always a teacher, I mean, you cannot go to school anymore and just do what you're supposed to do without the expectation when you leave that classroom is I need candy. I want y'all to know that's new. We didn't go to school with teachers having a ton of candy to hand out because we didn't, weren't mean that day. Or we only got three marks instead of five. Here's candy. Right? If I got one mark, I got my hind end whipped when I got home. Right? That was the incentive. Don't get whipped. Right? That was the incentive. That was the drive. But, but think about it. If, if you want a little bit of extra, that's why overtime is done by employees. Why? Incentive. Time and a half. No one does it because they believe in the mission and the product you're selling. Right? It's, it's incentive-driven, candy. Even the losing team now gets, what, trophies and, and ribbons. Chores. I've done my chores, Mom and Daddy. What do I get? At our house, we don't give allowance for being a part of our family. It's our choice. Why am I going to do that? Why should I bless you for doing what you should do? All right? You do extras. You read books, write reports in our house. You get rewarded for that. And Ava has never taken us up on it. She gets 10 bucks for every book and one-page report. Now, she's read more books than all of us in here this year. No reports. Therefore, no money. Right? That's the Baker house. That's not thus saith the Lord. But we have just created this. Man, what, what do I get from doing whatever is being asked of me to do? That our, our marriages, we want to be rewarded. If I, if I do this for my wife, then she will give me this. If, if, if I do this for him, then, then he will give me this. If I say this just right, then, then he will respond in this way. And it's, it's this idea that, man, we're demanding of rewards. We are longing for rewards. We expect these rewards. And Jesus is speaking into this. Brothers and sisters, let's face it. Man, we desire and long to be affirmed by others. Whoever says, I don't care what other people think about me, you know what they are? A liar. You're a liar. You do. There is somebody's opinion out there that you care about what they think and say about you. Man, I'm an affirmation sponge. The coach who yells and screams and gets in my face, you know what that does to the person like me? Shuts down. I'm done. Oh, oh, you're making fun of me because I'm a pout? I'm going to show you I'm a pout. Mm -hmm. Take my ball, I'm going home. Right? The coach who looks at me and says, you're awesome, even if I was terrible. You're awesome. You're the best player we got. 
I remember my, intramural, my, my Little League basketball told me, he said, you know, you don't score many points, Eric, but you are our defensive beast. You know what that did to me? I was like the Incredible Hulk the rest of that season. Hey, ain't no ball getting past me. Man, I was swatting, running. I mean, just, I'm long, lanky kid tripping over my feet. But, buddy, the arms spanned of two full-grown men in the fifth grade. When your knuckles drag the ground in the fifth grade, you're a little awkward. I, I mean, it just, in that affirmation, man, it just, I, I was like, I am. I am. I'm a defensive machine. Football, I never played. But if I did, I like the defensive side of the ball better than the offensive. I don't want to get tackled. I'm too pretty for that. But buddy, I want to bust you up. Linebacker, Baker, ugh! All because a coach looked at me and said, you're the defensive man. You know what I did when I made the first shot of my life in Little League basketball? I threw it up like that because the guy was running at me from like half court. Boosh, nothing but net. I run, this is on video. I run down the court going. <laughs> so excited. Defense. Why? Affirmation sponge. Man, we want to get noticed as a kid. Man, even, do you ever get this daddies or mamas when, when, you, you do something for your kid, right? And you're like, and what do, you, what do you say to a kid? What are you doing? You need your kid to affirm you. It's not always monetary reward. It's verbal affirmation. These men, look at what we've done, Jesus. We've given up our jobs. We've left our families. You need to recognize what we're doing. And let's get this settled before we go into the kingdom. What am I going to get? What reward am I going to have? At our job, we want to get cards from our boss. I'm not saying that all these things. We're to encourage one another, okay? That's the Bible, too. I'm just saying we, we've become like... Affirmation. I need affirmation. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. Doggone it. People like me. I mean, this is, this is the mentality that, that we have. I mean, we need to be noticed. And I need somebody to see what I've done. I need to, somebody to tell me that I've done a good job. I mean, in our jobs, how do we affirm? You feel affirmed when you get more money. We do. Get that bonus. Get a pay raise. Oh, and I'm, I'm doing good. I'm going to work even harder next year, not because it's right for the company and the right thing to do, but in hopes that I can be even getting more. I'm not saying, again, that we should be lazy or all these sorts of things, but, but you get this mentality that we have created inside this culture, this, this mentality of incentive. I follow this church communications blog online. I'm in this group of people, and um, they, they help kind of planning out, you know, communication things like your um, Facebook page and your graphics, and you can send it into this group, and they'll, they'll help you design things, all these sorts of things, and, and typically it's very helpful. But this week, I want you to, I want to take my computer and, like, fling it across the room. Because inside of this church, and there are obviously lots of churches that are doing this, and I was just like, oh my gosh. But they were debating about the style of the card they can make available on their information desk so that when people would come in, they could grab this card and it would say on the card, I've already given online. So that they wouldn't feel bad about themselves when the plate was passed and they didn't put anything in it. You get what's happening? They were feeling bad. Well, that's when you, you got to learn the fake, people, especially if it's a bag. You act like something's in your hand, you put it in there, you release nothing and take it back. All right? I used, Laura and I used to give online at our other church. I know that feeling. Oh, everybody's passing, but the pastor isn't giving anything. It's magic, right? But, but do you get the problem with that? 
We've got to make the people in the pews next to us, what, feel, feel rewarded. They can't feel non-noticed. They're feeling bad because we've already given online, but everybody, a lot of other people are giving around us, so we need to be able to give some sort of token. So we've got this card, and they were debating on this church staff, debating on whether it should be a tear away from the weekly or from a card in the back, and I just wanted to throw up. But I'm guilty. Every time I preach is an exercise in I preaching for you and for you to affirm me. Or am I preaching in obedience to God? Every time. Every time. See, this is what Jesus knows about us, according to one of the commentaries. I, just, I wrote this down. I've highlighted on my notes. It will go in my journal this week. We want to do the mini, minimum, but expect maximum results. We want to do the bare minimum, all right? College student, what can I do to get a C, right? Bare minimum. If it's 500 words, mine was 499 typically, all right? We want to do, we live in a culture that this is what is ingrained into us. We're, we're told things as a small child is, man, do what you love to do and find someone dumb enough to pay you to do that. Right? I mean, we, 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 we want to do the bare minimum of, of what we think is required. Okay, God, God, do you say in the New Testament that you require 10%? No, he doesn't say that. It's actually more, way more. It's generous. It's sacrificial. But I feel good when I give my 10%. Right? In, in that passage, and this is not a sermon on money, but, it, but it, it's a great illustration. In that passage where it says God loves a generous giver, you know what that word generous is in, in the Greek? It's, the, it's, it's where we get the word hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. What's he saying? It's ridiculous. It's when you look at your husband or your wife when you're writing the generous check, and they're like, oh, no, he didn't, right? Kind of giving. Like, we ain't going to eat this week. Cable bill is due, right? We can't go on vacation if we do that. That it's, it's, it's laughable. That it's hysterical. That's the type of sacrificial giving. And yet, within us, God knows in the deepest, darkest corridors of our heart that this sin, this idea that, God, I, I want to follow you the minimum amount and get maximum heaven. I want to follow you the, just, what's enough? I just want to ride somebody's coattail in. Right? I just, what, what's the, how can I live like this and live like this and make it? Minimum, maximum result. I call this going to the gym. So I typically stand around and talk to Trevor. And then once he leaves to go be with his wife every morning, I leave <laughs> after not lifting because he's taking my time talking, and I call it discipleship, and he doesn't know that. But I feel better about it, because if someone asked me, did you go to the gym? Yes. I pay for it every month. I go there almost every day. But I do not always lift. But I'm there, at least in the parking lot. If I pull in and stop, I went to the gym, right? Walk up, scan my card, leave, right? Some of y'all do that, right? I would. I'm, again, I'm the only sinner at Mission Church. It's a good thing because Jesus came for sinners. I don't know what y'all's deal is. I don't know what that means for you. But he comes for sinners. So knowing all of that, what does this ultimately reveal about Jesus' character? Side note, time out from sermon. Brothers and sisters, when you have a daily quiet time, the goal isn't to get a bigger nugget of information. The goal isn't to feel gooey at the end of it. I hear people say all the time, well, I have these devotionals. I just don't feel anything. You know why? Because you're seeking a reward that isn't the purpose. 
for what God is trying to do. We go into the Word to know God, to see something, a truth about His character and His nature, not five points to a better marriage, not four points to raising your kids better, not six ways to save money, all right? You, you, you go to the Scripture to know this God, and this is what we do in preaching. This is why we say probably every week, man, what does this reveal about Jesus' character? Is this, in spite of our arrogance, in spite of our demanding nature, in spite of our tendency to not understand what Jesus is, is really calling us to, he is extremely patient. Think about these knuckleheads. We all say, well, if, if I was there with Jesus following him and saw all that stuff, you know what you'd be doing? I'm pretty great, Jesus. Just want you to know. That's why if, if I was Adam and Eve naked in the garden, I wouldn't have eaten of that fruit. Yes, you would. Yes, you would. How arrogant to think that we wouldn't. Yet Jesus is so patient. Jesus, I, this is at least, I think, the second time that we had this great debate amongst the disciples of who is greatest. And it's not going to be the last one before he dies in seven days. They cannot get this out of their mind. And yet Jesus, in his character, in his nature, he is, he is patient, he is kind. Jesus gives us what we ultimately need, not what our wants are. And what he gives is always perfect, and when he says no, you need to understand this, it is always the best no of your life. Jesus is saying here in this passage, right, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Who is first among them? Jesus. Jesus is the one that is first among them. And what does he say? He says, man, whoever is first among you must be your slave. Must be your slave. And then he goes on. He says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is saying in this passage, I am the slave. And it is my joy for people that I just described. The throne is my rightful place. But I take the role of the slave. No one serves the slave. Think about it. If you're the low man on the totem pole, no one serves you. Because you're the low man. You're the lowest of lows. You're the slave. Jesus tells him, I did not come for you to serve me, to be even served by you, but I came to serve you. Now, Jesus is not saying that he is a waiter, that he's at your ever becking call, but he's saying, like a good daddy who's overlooking all and managing all of his household, is that he's looking at the great scheme of things, and he's saying, this is what is best for you. Jesus is that kind of suffering slave king that is doing what is the very best for us. He is doing the work of a slave that you and I cannot do ourselves. He gave his life in servanthood. He gave his life as a payment for our sin debt. What we could not pay to God, Jesus pays in full. He uses the term here, ransom. Think kidnapped. Think prisoner of war. It's asking the question of the, of the person who is placing this person in bondage. Okay, what will it take to free them? Right? I'll do anything it asks. We've seen this in movies played out. We've seen this in television shows. Every CSI from Nashville to Vegas to New York has some episode where somebody is kidnapped and they're asking the question, what will it take? We'll give you any amount of money. We'll exchange my life for this life. We'll, we'll do whatever it takes. And, and Jesus says this, and he, he reminds us in, in the Psalms even in chapter 49, truly no man can ransom another. Or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. And he goes down in that same chapter in verse 15 of, of Psalm 49. He says, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, the grave. 
and he will receive me. Let's get real theological this morning. It's a question that is raised that we need to answer. When Jesus asks, okay, what is, is going to need to be paid here? When he asks the one who is the captor, what is this going to require to set these criminals free? When he's saying, I, I, will, I will do whatever it takes, who does Jesus give the, the ransom price for your life to? And for those of you who are not in Christ, their final captivity, the prison guard, the prison warder, warden, is God. When Jesus says to the captive, to the, to the one who is, is placed these criminals into their cells, he is standing not before sin, Satan, and death, brothers and sisters. He is standing before God. He is standing before God himself. It is what God requires to be paid. Not sin, Satan, and death. God stands, he demands in his character, he is the one that must be appeased. God is the one who hates the sinner and his sin. God is the one who himself is offering up to God, to himself, an offering. This is what Jesus says in Ephesians chapter 2, is I'm offering, I'm giving myself to God, as an offering to God. Christ offered himself without blemish to God in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. We have fallen short of God's glory. We are deserving of his wrath. Everyone, though God, who, who would be right in punishing all, has decided to save many by looking at Jesus as the substitute for their sins. Then their sins are many. Once he looks upon Jesus, God says, it costs you life. And Jesus dies. He, he gives in an act of service. He gives everything. He, he dies. And, and God, in that divine moment, what that must have looked like is God took the, the giant divine gavel of his courtroom and slammed it against his holiness and his desk. And he says, all right, Jesus, you have paid the debt. The wage of sin has been paid. It has been paid completely in your perfect sacrifice, your substitution. You have taken their place. You come. You die the death that they should have died to give them a life that they do not deserve. God has, has saved us from God through the person and work of Jesus. And that is great news, brothers and sisters. If Jesus ever stops serving you and I, those who has saved, for a split second we crumble and die. He came to serve. He continues to serve. Man, what a picture of the gospel. Jesus serves us like a, a, a newborn baby who can do nothing, who can give nothing. How do you serve the perfect one? Man, have you ever seen a, a nurse taking care of a coma patient? Or in the circle that I run in, have you ever seen a child who has such severe special needs that they were, for all intents and purposes, they're in a wheelchair. They're going to do absolutely nothing. They're, they're nonverbal. There's a heart that is beating. There are lungs that are moving. There's a brain that is somewhat functioning. But this child, from the time that they're a baby, until they die, is in this state. And you see that mama willing them through Walmart and acting like they're normal. You seen that before? Slobber running down their cheek. And, and no one else will do that. But a mom keeps many towels and every so often swipes Johnny's lip. He's unable to eat, unable to use the bathroom by themselves. And yet that daddy takes care of that little girl. 
whom he can receive really nothing from. Or like a husband whose wife gets dementia early on in their lives as a married couple. She reverts back into childlike behavior, not even knowing who he is. And he takes her to the bathroom. He lays her in their, their marriage bed every night. As she says crazy things and as he snugs her as, as bug in a rug. That's our Jesus. That is a shadow of our Jesus. And we're the baby. We're the kid with special needs. We're, we're the coma patient. We're the husband or wife who has dementia or Alzheimer's. Yet he serves. Unless the news gets a hold of it, those families never get the fanfare. Right? We're looking at LeBron James and athletes. You know who our heroes should be is people, and I think that's one of the things that's going to be awesome about heaven, is those whom we think were great will be at the back of the line. And the, home, and the homes and the people who served without seeing the fanfare will be as the ones that God has ordained to sit closest to Him. So what is our response? It's to worship that Jesus. What is our response to, to this Jesus who would take the death? God, you've got to know that it's not just figuratively. People are really going to experience that hell, that wrath. And it is not the devil and a pitchfork down there in control having a party of this. No, it is God who is in control of that. Hell is the, the absence of God's love. It is all of his justice, all of his wrath, and it is being poured out on those who rightly judge. They, they deserve it. And guess what? You and I do as well. Yet, he has come for many, many, many millions and millions of billions of people throughout all of history. Jesus has many sheep that he is drawing into his fold. And what a pleasure it is, is if you are counted among those sheep. So the only response is to throw your hands up with your shirt off running like I was telling you guys earlier as I run through my neighborhood listening to praise and worship my hands up I mean this is ridiculous if you're my neighbors but that that is the model that I want to live is that I in thinking about these things the only response that I have is to say my life is yours it's yours Jesus so I worship that Jesus the only Jesus, the biblical Jesus, the Lord, the Savior, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. All my life, time, talent, treasure is, is all I want to edify and, and, and to reflect this Jesus. Secondly, what is our response? Is that we are to serve. After the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, then Christians are called what? The servants of the Lord. In Scripture, we are told to do all things as unto the Lord. So now we do serve the Lord, not in a salvific way, but because we have been served. See, the rich young ruler came to Jesus asking, man, how can I serve you to get salvation or to get rewarded? But Jesus is explaining to his disciples, he is explaining to these folks that you do not serve me. To get reward. Because ultimately you can't serve me. You can't bring me anything that I don't have. You can't bring a quality to this relationship that I don't already possess. And yet, he tells us 
that we are not to be glorified in others, but that we are to be glorified in the person and work of Jesus. And I want to be like Jesus. You, if you're a believer, you should want to be like Jesus. Jesus says, man, I am the suffering servant. I lay down my life. I give my life for the sake of others. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means to be a student. This is what it means is an imitator, a shadow on this earth that reflects Jesus and his sacrificial ability to serve those whom do not deserve it. Because we have been shown much servanthood, we serve. We serve. So why did Jesus come? To serve. Why are we still here? To serve. Again, not to be saved, but because we are saved. We must get this. God gets nothing from your time, talent, and treasure. Nothing. He can create rocks, he says, that will cry out and sing Come behold thy wondrous mystery much better than we can. Then, then why has he called us to serve? What is the purpose? First and quickly, others need it. Others need it. You are the means by which God is going to do the work, his work in others. After the resurrection, guess what happens to James? He's the first of the disciples to be martyred. He's beheaded in Acts chapter 12. What happens to John? As we often mention, they tried to kill him. It didn't work, so he lives in isolation on a prison island by himself. See, he got it. They got it after the resurrection. And we're this side of the resurrection. John would later write in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. To love someone is to be more concerned about their well-being than your own. To serve someone means to be more concerned about their well-being than your own. See, true servants of Jesus are asking, what can we do more of? What are the dirty jobs that no one once, without seeking a fair fanfare, once again, uh, we begin to look at how, how much we are doing and comparing that to how little others are doing. This is how sin, Satan, and death begins to work itself into the local church, is that we want to say, well, I'm, I'm doing all of this, and, and these people aren't doing this, and so I'm going to back off. And that is not the servant mindset of Jesus. We give sacrificially. It hurts. And the flip side of this is that we're all standing around watching each other and having excuses of why we can't serve. Oh, I'm too young. I'm single. Listen to these. I, I'm too young. I'm, I'm single. Well, I, I'm in college. I'm, I'm married. I don't have kids. We have kids. I have a job. I'm looking for a job. I'm retired. I'm old. I can't serve. Instead of excuses, brothers and sisters, instead of looking around and seeing what everyone else is doing, look up. Look into the text. How have you been served? That is what matters. And you have been served infinitely. You have been served as he gave his life, as he, as he bled out on this cross. Jesus has served, and so we serve as unto the Lord, but how we do that? We serve, man. We serve everyone else. We lay down our lives, the benefit of others above our own. We lay down the excuses of being too young but being too old, and somehow that works in our mindset of why we cannot serve. But if you have met Jesus, if you've been saved by Jesus, I want you to know that this is the natural response of those of us who have been saved. C.J. Mahaney, author, pastor, writer, says, ultimately our Christian service exists only to draw attention to the source of our crucified and risen Lord who gave himself a ransom for all. So why do we serve then if God doesn't need it and we can't really give anything to him? One, he commands us to do that. Two, other, others need it. Three, we need it. What do you mean by that? If you're not being faithful in service, you're not going to get what I'm talking about. 
So I, I encourage you to come talk to me about it, or Pastor Justin. If you are being faithful in service, you are going to get what I'm about to talk about. Jesus sanctifies you, that means to make you more like Christ, when you serve other people. It's this process by which sanctification comes. In the, in the laying down, the getting the bloody, not, not fair fail, I do, I do not need to be affirmed by other people, I am affirmed by Jesus. So when, when I really begin to live in that mindset, man, I can freely give of my time, talent, and treasure sacrificially, and in doing so, Jesus is going to chip away more at you in serving. See, in response to the service of Jesus, you are obligated to serve in these areas. Your marriage, your children, your church, your enemies, and your employers. You are called to serve those things. You're called to lay down your life for the sake of the others involved in those things. And this is what I mean by when I say that Jesus is using it to sanctify your life, is that we will often say, well, they don't deserve it, right? I want to respond in serving my wife when she has done something nice for me. The, the call of the gospel is, is to serve her no matter what she is doing, no matter what I get from her. Not because she did something, you, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch you. No, I'll scratch your back. I'll scratch your back. You, you lay down your life for the brotherhood. You lay down your life for the marriage. You lay down your life for your children. You, you say, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? Not I'm serving in all these different areas and I can't serve anymore. No, we say, man, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? How can I serve? How can I serve? How can I serve? I understand there's, there's value. You got to work. You got to take care of it. I, I, I get all of that, but I want you to get what Jesus is trying to do. When you and I live sacrificially, when we serve other people, look at what Jesus does. And let me tell you what you're going to do when you serve sacrificially. You're going to fail at it miserably. You're going to be terrible at it. See, when you step out into servinghood, you're going to realize how selfish you are, how selfish I am, how much affirmation I need. You're, you're going to step out to serve, and God is going to reveal to you this, how much you need his service. But that only comes to those who are sacrificially, faithfully serving. Does that make sense? I mean, this, this, this is what Jesus is going to do. You're going to realize how terrible you are as a dad or a mom. Man, you're going to, to realize, if anything that being a pastor has taught me, is how terrible at it I am. But how merciful God is. And I would have never learned that lesson without being this pastor. You've got to get to what he is trying to do and how he's going to use suffering to make you more like Jesus. It is going to show you your inability to do it with, without him. It builds a dependency. We become like the blind men. Lord Jesus, man, I mean, sometimes I just collapse in the bed at night. Saying, Lord Jesus, uh, have mercy on, on me. Give me strength to do this. C.S. Lewis once said, relying on God has to begin all over again every day as nothing had yet ever been done. It's this picture of every day. I've got to rely on Jesus. I don't know how, how I'm going to get through the day. I don't, God, I don't have, I'm weak. Lord, I'm weak. Every time I Preach a sermon. Every time I try to love my kids, it never seems to go the way that I want it to go, Lord Jesus. Every time I try to serve my wife, I fall miserably on my face, Lord. It makes me dependent upon you because if we want to be like Jesus, we must experience the suffering servant mentality, and it only happens when you serve him faithfully, and in doing so, he will realize, you and I will realize that it is his sacrificial service that enables us, empowers us to be able to do it. And how should people respond when they see your kindness and your servanthood? Man, God is good. Look at what he's doing. I know that guy. I know that girl. She's not, worth, she, she's not worthy of what God is doing inside of him or her. Yet God is gracious and merciful because he, must, he is serving his kid. And because of that, he can serve, she can serve.
we are driven to intimacy with Jesus through sacrificial service daily, trusting, trusting God, Lord Jesus, help me, help me to serve. I don't want to serve these people. I feel rejected by these people. I feel rejected by her. I feel rejected by my kid. God is saying, I, I, I affirm you. I affirm you. I love you. Look how I've served you. I gave my life, so go give your life as a service to others. Love them sacrificially. Don't demand of me. Be dependent of me. Don't be like the disciples in this area. Be like the blind men. Look to heaven. Rejoice. For you have been served if you have saved. And so have I been. So may we be a church that is all in. Blank check. All in. There's no room in the kingdom of God just for people who want to ride the pine for the rest of their lives or all their lives. But to, to give to this mission of worshiping Jesus, making disciples, multiplying to the ends of the earth. That's, that's the kind of community I want to be a part of. It's just we are trying to outdo each other in serving and are seeking no glory, no fanfare, and that can only come through knowing this Jesus. Let's pray. Lord.